Welcome to I Got Back Up. I'm Talia Lazarus, creator of I Got Back Up. And in August 2021, I was in a road accident. I didn't walk for 10 weeks. I had knee surgery that September and a second double knee surgery in February 22. My journey took me through greatest highs and extreme lows. We don't realize how much we take for granted until it is all taken away. The day I was able to get a glass of water all by myself was one of those little moments in life. Everyone has a story, and as humans, we always talk about when someone is back up or how something happened, but we don't discuss the middle part, the recovery, the journey, the darkness, the continuous roller coaster of ups and downs. It's a taboo subject for most, but here it's not. You have a chance to change your story, your outcome, your next chapter. You can face all your hurdles, obstacles and walls with us and those around you. You are not alone. We recover together. Author Mark Wagstaff spent most of his 20s and 30s drinking and taking drugs. After being forced to change everything after the birth of his eldest child, Mark turned to writing and has just published his most recent novel, On the Level. About global politics, modern art and how street protests collide in this thriller. Finding something you love to do during or even a dark time can change everything, as writing has done so for Mark. With an understanding of how challenging it can be to let go and break away from substances, his only regret wasn't taking, it was doing so much. To Mark, a few years would have been enough, not a decade or more, as he doesn't remember much from those years. However, without that and that time, he wouldn't be who he is today. And honestly, he wouldn't change what he went through. So today we're with Mark. How are you doing today? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm very good, thank you. I'm good. So, as you know, the floor goes straight over to you. So wherever you want to start, it's over to you. Um, I would like to start by speaking a little bit about my new novel, On the Level. But Absolutely. That, before that, I should probably say that um, I, I like to call myself a writer. Um, a writer of short stories and novels. And I've been writing probably for the best part of my adult life. Um, but I started getting published towards the end of the 20th century, which very few people now remember. Um, I've published six novels to date, and that's been a, a variety of uh, commercial publication and self-publication. I've also had out um, a couple of short story collections. Um, most recently, though, my new novel, on the level, available <laughs> at, at all good and mediocre bookshops. Um, but I've recently published that on a hybrid publishing model um, mm -hmm. through Leaf by Leaf, which is an imprint of Cinnamon Press, who are very good, helpful, knowledgeable and professional people. And I would like to just give them, you know, give them some praise for all the work they did on the book. So if you want to tell us then a little bit about the book. Um, the idea for the book um, has been around for quite a while now. I mean, it, I've probably been working on it for around six years or so, on and off, in between doing other things. And like a lot of stories, it began from a really simple idea, which is what if you are staying in a hotel room and there is a professional assassin in the room next door who is doing a <laughs> job and you get to know them and you get dragged yeah. into their world? And so that was where the idea came from, that apparently very simple idea. And it turned out that the story wanted to be told 
um, by a young woman called Riz Montgomery, um, mm -hmm. who is the live the live wire mile a minute narrator of the novel. And Riz is a 15 year old woman who has a number of interesting things about her. And there's a very obvious question there, and I hope I'm not preempting you, but there's a very obvious question there about why an old geezer like me is writing <laughs> in the voice of a 15 year old woman. And that's partly because I wanted to write someone who is striving for independence. I wanted to write mm -hmm. someone who's striving for a sense of justice, but also who is constrained in ways that older people are not. So she's okay. financially constrained, obviously. She's somewhat socially constrained because she's there with her family. In the eyes of the world, she's still, you know, not quite an adult, not quite a child. And that made her situation interesting in terms of the story that I wanted to tell, that you have someone here who is really struggling um, to grow and develop, but is still in that constrained part of their life. Yeah. And the setup is really quite simple. I mean, Riz ha is, I think neurodivergent is one way to put it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many of us are somewhere in that territory. Um, Riz hears voices. She takes extraordinary risks. She has zero impulse control. Mm -hmm. And re and and she is very attached, very attached to being herself. We learn through the book that she has experienced various attempts of, of treatment um, at the hands of um, a psychiatrist who she regards as this bogeyman figure. Um, but she <laughs> wants no treatment. She wants no cure. Yeah. She is very, very attached to being herself. And in telling that story, it, it also emerged that she is a huge fan of Mark Rothko, um, the artist Mark Rothko, and that, of course, is not accidental, because it seemed to me that someone with Riz's characteristics could very credibly be attracted to the work of Rothko. Rothko, as you know, mm -hmm. has particular impacts on people that other, mm -hmm. that other artists don't have, and it seemed quite credible that that would be her thing. And she ends up in London because her father, her is not really her father, spoiler alert, but he's some kind of big shot diplomat. And in London, you have this conference going on, which is kind of like the G20. It's kind of something like that. He's dealing with the big shots there. And it happens that you have a big Rothko exhibition going on um, at, um, at the National Gallery at around the same time. So that's what got Riz to London, but unfortunately yeah. with the family that she hates. Um, they're staying in this very, very upmarket hotel. It's very upmarket because it's where all the conference attendees are. You know, yeah. so it's a, a place that's highly luxurious, full of police, totally surrounded by a ring of steel. You can imagine how you, you know how you, <laughs> how you do these kinds of conferences. Um, and she's staying in a suite that has an adjoining mm -hmm. door to the suite next door. You know, as many hotels have families and so on. Um, and she goes exploring, and she meets the man who is in the suite next door. She only ever refers to him as the man. Um, his identity is not quite clear. He's some kind of international assassin. And in some ways, he's almost a caricature of the classic yeah. gangster. He's a very sharp dresser. 
He's a very sharp talker. He, he's got like a <laughs> he's got like an antique cigarette case. He's got an antique cigarette light. Yeah. He's got an old watch. You know, he, he's just almost a caricature of that kind of sixties jet set yeah. glamorous gangster. And the the fundamental of the story is about the very kind of tenuous, strange, but in, in some ways meaningful friendship that develops between mm-hmm. this very isolated teenage woman and this absolutely stone cold man <laughs> and he is absolutely stone cold in all his interactions yeah. but that develops because among all the adults that she deals with he is the only one who who takes her seriously who acknowledges mm. that she's intelligent who doesn't talk down to her he uses yeah. her for you know as part of his mission he, he quite shamelessly uses her for various bits of his mission but he always treats her kind of as an equal, and that's how mm-hmm. she responds to him, because he's different mm-hmm. to any other adult that she's met. Yeah. What's really interesting, actually, about that then and the relationship is that in real life, obviously, you know, not with regards to the book, that can happen is you can meet the, you can have, I'm talking about friendships as well, or work mm-hmm. relationships. You can have relationships with the with people that you never, ever, ever expected to, but bonds can form no absolutely so and i mean i think you know even to taking that a bit further perhaps uh, perhaps some people who might be watching this have had even had relationships with people who yeah. it was kind of unexpected you know that thing people used to tell you at parties no weird hookups <laughs> you, you know i mean obviously we're not in that territory here in this book but, but one thing that i wanted to explore through it as well is the fact that the adults that are surrounding her, so her her family, the police who feature a lot, you know, various international lowlifes who are knocking around. Yeah. You know, basically these are people who don't really have a moral compass. You know, yeah. and and there's a very strong sense that I mean everybody knows each other, that they're playing this international game that moves around the world from one place to another. And none of this is strange except to Riz. She's coming mm-hmm. to it new. And she's the one with the ethical centre in the book. But she's also the one that nobody takes seriously, aside Mm. from the guy who wants her to help with his hit. (laughs) And I have one question I do want to ask. Did you come up with the idea in a hotel room? (laughs) I've spent a a lot of time in hotel rooms over the years. And I mean, certainly, yeah, the idea of... You know that the connecting door. What if the connecting door's left unlocked? Why is it left unlocked? Yeah. You know, and and there's also this strangeness of staying in hotels. I mean, for a long time, um, I've spent quite a bit of time in the states, and for a long yeah. time, I gave up using hotels entirely, and I, you know, bought into the whole Airbnb thing um, <laughs> because I just find hotels so strange. Yeah. You know, and and there's just so much oddity about it. I mean, like. You know, in the morning, the the maid will come in to do the cleaning. The first thing they do is go into the into the bathroom and flush the toilet. That's the first <laughs> thing they do. And I mean, this happened to me when I was staying in a place. I'm just, why is that always the first thing you do? And what kind of judgment are you passing on me? <laughs> you know, yeah. I find hotels are odd, but of course it's a. I mean, it's a blatant literary device because yeah. if you have a hotel you can throw together you've got this contained environment and you can throw together all kinds of people 
Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, yeah. it's just a, it's a blatant device like that. And you could see with some kind of, you know, international conference that you would have this place that you could yeah. sequester, that you could just stick armed police all around it, this place where you yeah. can just corral everybody in port, you yeah. know, and then narrative possibilities come out from that. Yeah, of course, of course. So uh, when has is the book out now? The book is out now, and you can get it from your local bookstore, from uh, Cinema Press, or indeed from Amazon. Perfect. Well, I'll, uh, I'll I'll make sure to put the link out somewhere as well for you, of course. So obviously, I want to know then about the backstory of why you got into writing and kind of your journey towards it. I mean, I think that um, I, I'm, some of the things I'm going to say are probably a little bit generational as it were mm-hmm. i mean when i when i was a kid spending your time reading books was still like a mainstream activity yeah. you know i mean my and my mother was a great reader she used to like reading romances she used to like reading um, reader's digest condensed books um you know <laughs> book, which is great it's books with all the boring bits cut out yeah. and i'm all in favor of that um but it was kind of a normal activity then that you'd sit around reading. So I was, I was quite a bookish child, you know, as, as people are. And one of my earliest memories, probably when I've come to like six, seven, is being at primary school and just like scribbling away, scribbling away in mm-hmm. exercise books. I have no idea what I was writing. I have no idea what I was writing about. But I was just scribbling page after page. And of course, back in those yeah. days, teachers had a lot more leeway just to like leave kids alone. If they were keeping <laughs> quiet, yeah, fine, just leave them alone. You know, because there was no like national curriculum then. So it was, yeah. you know, that was all right. You could just go and scribble away in the snowpad. Um, I mean, I remember uh, just ducking a little bit further into the past. It was actually my father who taught me to read when I was about five. And he taught me to read using flashcards. And it was an absolutely painful process because he wanted me to learn to read. And we had to like do yeah. an hour of this a night. And I used to be in tears because I couldn't do it. And he used to be getting yeah. angry because I couldn't do it. And I learned to read that way. Um, but I stopped for quite a few years because I was, mm-hmm. oh, I was drunk. So I stopped for quite a few years. Um, and probably I took up writing again seriously. I would guess kind of the late, probably the very end of the 1980s, the early 1990s, which was when I started to write um, what became my first self-published novel after work was around that time. And then Claire was the one that followed that. Um, But that was, thinking back now, I'm not quite sure if there was one single trigger for that. But I think it was there was something I just wasn't doing. You know, there was something my brain wanted to do that that just wasn't getting filled by other things. Yeah. You know, and I just started writing and I found that I just for all the occasional frustrations, I found that I really enjoyed doing it. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing it ever since. I've been really, really privileged that, you know, I've had short stories published you know, for about twenty odd years here and there, mainly I must say in the US. Um, I can't even get arrested in Britain, mainly in the US, uh, but also had a couple of novels published commercially and a short story collection published commercially, as well as, you know, self-publishing and the hybrid venture with On The Level. Yeah, it's about finding things that fulfil you for sure. And you were saying that, it, you know, you were trying to find something that you didn't feel completely fulfilled and writing made you feel that way. Yeah, um, absolutely. So. Yeah. And obviously you touched upon being drunk so do you want to elaborate kind of where that 
journey was from? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, again, this is this is somewhat generational. I mean, yeah. probably anyone younger than me may not recognise some of this, but um, like when I'm fourteen, fifteen, I start, you know, I started smoking because everybody did then. You know, especially when you go to an all boys school, you know, it's something they do. Um, and obviously, going to school in the countryside, you know, you start to go down the pub at lunchtime. I mean, because you did. I mean, th- we're talking here about the 1970s, the 1980s. Yeah. It's what people did then. You know, lunchtime drinking was a thing. You know, and you'd go down the pub. The teachers would be down the pub, um, but you used to ignore each other. You know, you used to mm-hmm. just absolutely kind of you didn't didn't see each other. Um, but <laughs> Actually, those kind of early this this was down in Kent, so obviously I was drinking cider, obviously at uh, Snake Bar, um, and those those kind of early kind of lunchtime sessions when I was at school was the start of about a, something like twenty five year love affair with alcohol, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you really you know, if you kind of want to get a bit psychoanalytic about this, it's interesting. There's nothing in my family back. There are no drinkers in my family background. Yeah, you know. Uh, my mother never touched a cigarette in her life. My father used to smoke like one woodbine a day. He'd have his dinner and then he'd have his woodbine, you know, and that was it. Um, but I just, I, I just, I think the thing is, I came from quite a poor background. Um, mm-hmm. And my mother, I said after my father died, well, actually, we were poor before that, but after he died, I mean, my mother really, really worked hard really worked on, you know, and doing all those really, if I may say it, jobs, you know, like she worked in old people's homes, clearing up after old people. Um, she worked in a pie factory, painting egg glaze on pies all day. I mean, you can imagine you just come home stinking of eggs. You know. She worked on a farm, um, putting, apple, yeah. grading apples by size, because it's just cheaper to pay someone than to get a machine to do that. Um, so she really slaved herself into the ground always. And we never had any money, never, ever had any money. You know, got evicted from a few places, partly because of my father's inability with money, which I've inherited. Um, and, you know, whatever my mum did, it was never enough. And I was always like the poor kid of, of you know, you got your friend group, you know, and I was always like the poor kid. Um, because there were a lot of like, because I, I was at school with a lot of middle class kids, you know, back in the day when if you were middle class, you got on all right, money wise. Mm. Um, and, you know, just drinking just made me feel different. It just made me feel like a different person. And I guess that's no great insight. I mean, just ducking back to on the level, I mean, Riz is a prodigious drinker and, and does a lot to try and get alcohol because, you know, it just makes her feel like a different person. And, yeah. Obviously, you know, as anyone who's been a drunk knows, you know, drunks never, uh, drunks never really understand how drunk they are, you know, yeah. and and they they always think they're more capable than they are. I was a nasty person to be around when I was drunk, absolutely so. Um, and of course, you tend to fall in with other people who are also quite drunk, you know. And again, coming from school days. You know, we used to smoke a lot of weed back then. Kids, you didn't invent this. You know, we used to smoke a lot of weed back in the day, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and also take a bit of speed, you know, on, on sort of nights out. And, mm-hmm. and I just kind of ended up drinking an awful lot and taking a lot of speed, taking a lot of cocaine, 
cocaine and um, smoking a lot of weed as well. This is kind of what I was doing for mm. probably about 15 or 20 years of my life, mm. you know, um, and all the time feeling quite invincible. And actually looking back and obviously you know, hindsight, let's not go there because we'll all get hugely depressed. But, you know, those are the years when I should have been writing. You know, through my 20s and 30s were the years when I ought to have been writing, yeah. when I ought to have been really focused on things instead of just being an annoying mess. Yeah, no, I, I guess that's the thing that's, like you said, I guess hindsight, isn't it? It's the beauty mm -hmm. of hindsight that you see afterwards where, what, why, how differently it could have been. Um, and then obviously, you know, did you have a glimmer of hope moment where you, not even a glimmer of hope, but a moment where you thought, right, I, I need to sort this out. I need to change. I need to do something differently. I mean, yeah, there was. I, I mean, this was kind of before I kind of stopped doing everything. I actually stopped yeah. doing all those things quite suddenly, um, which is a bit of a story in itself. Um, we'll talk, mm -hmm. we talk about that in a moment. But I mean, um, I remember, and this is, you know how like the particular tells you about the gen. It was, yeah. it was one Saturday. So, of myself and my partner at the time, we didn't, we spent all our money on alcohol and weed. So, we didn't actually have much money to go out, although we used to kind of go out as well. Do, but, you know, <laughs> so a typical Saturday might be spent, you know, taking some speed, um, drinking gin, drinking gin with alka pops as a mixer. Okay. That's when you, that's, that's proper drinking. That's properly <laughs> being an alcoholic. Drinking gin with mm -hmm. alcohol pops as a mixer. Um, and just going around and being silly. And I remember this particular Saturday. Yeah. Um, just been doing all this stuff and it got around to about three in the morning. So you get, you get to about three in the morning and just buzzing. You're absolutely mm -hmm. buzzing. You can feel your veins. You're buzzing so <laughs> much. Um, and mm -hmm. so you then just smoke a load of weed. You know, yeah. to calm you down. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. That's what I We calmed me down, fell asleep. Next thing I knew, it was about, it was, that was on the Saturday, sort of early hours of Sunday morning. It was six o'clock on Sunday night when I woke up. And it was winter, so it was dark. Mm -hmm. So I'd gone mm -hmm. to sleep in the dark, woken up in the mm -hmm. dark. And it just dawned on me, and this is like a really obvious thing. It's no great revelation. It dawned on me. I've actually just wasted a whole day there. Like I just slept through the entire day, you know, and all the things I plan to do will now not get done because I've just slept through this entire day. And that, that was probably the first time when I really thought, you know, this is not a great idea. Yeah. That this is not a great idea if you're going to lose like half of your weekend. And it's like six o'clock yeah. on a Sunday night. And now I've just got to have something to eat and then go back to bed because I'm getting up to work in the morning. You know, and that's half the weekend vanished away. Yeah. And that's when you just start to think it, it isn't intelligent doing this. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, it makes sense. And I think that's definitely when, with anything when you see the, when you have your weekend or you have days where they might be off work or things like that and you, spend them doing things that maybe aren't great for you, let's say, you do feel a sense of, I have wasted, 
I've wasted this. Uh, and I don't really want to waste this again. I mean, obviously some people don't see that and you know, that that's, you know, that's totally okay. But when you do feel like you've wasted it, I think that's when you kind of say to yourself, okay, I need to change what's going on. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's the changing that can be hard. But I mean, fortunately yeah. for me, I was forced into changing. Um, because in, in the way, I mean, there's something of a sequence in my life, the way kind of one compulsion replaces another replaces. Yes. Um, because that was around the time that we, that we, my partner and I, of the time and I, that was around the time we started having children. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I, I can, I can happily say that that's accidental because my children all know that they're accidents. Um, <laughs> they're all, there, but, I, I should say that they're, they're, they're adults now. You know, they're all grown up. So this was a while ago. But then when you start to have children, you realise that you actually do need to change because you have this responsibility um, that nobody can prepare you for. You know, Mm -hmm. and the thing is, friends and family members can tell you about their experience, but no one actually can prepare you. And this is not a massive insight. I mean, people say this. No one can prepare you for being responsible for this human Mm -hmm. being that can do nothing. You know, for itself, mm. um, yeah. and it, it's it really, and also of course the you know, the inevitable expense that comes from having children as well. Um, so the only way around that was just to stop doing all the things mm-hmm. you know that I'd been doing before. Um, you know, you know, smoking, drinking, everything. You just and I I mentioned that you know as, as well as taking. Speed, which nearly killed me once, um, but that's another story. Uh, but taking speed, taking cocaine as well, you know, mixed together sometimes. A speedball, I believe people, the hippies used to call it. Um, the thing about coke is, and I don't want to be misunderstood in what I'm saying here, but it's mm-hmm. it's really nice at the time. When you're out of your head on coke, it's really nice at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not nice long term um but actually the i didn't have any option except to just stop doing everything so i just stopped cold taking everything Mm -hmm. and i felt so ill for months for months i felt really ill as well as putting on vast amounts of weight which i've never lost Uh, but that's actually because of my idle lifestyle but um i just felt so ill for such a long time Because you just stop taking this stuff. And I mean, um, when I say I felt ill, that's a really nebulous way of putting it. So, for example, you know, I'd like be on the, the tube, say, travelling home, and you'd start to get the bends where it feels like all the surfaces are moving, bending around, twisting, and you're sweating like a summer's day. You know, you're absolutely drenched in sweat. And you look at all the people in the tube carriage, and they all look like bloody maniacs. And think, you know, and you think there's something wrong with all of them, and you think, can they see actually what's happening to me? Yeah, they can. They can all see what's happening to me. They're all looking at me, you know. And that's what it's like, or that's what it's like for me. I can't speak for everyone. That's what it's like for me when I just stopped taking that stuff suddenly, you know, because it takes your body months and months to adjust, and you just so damn. But what happened was that um, at the time there was a, uh, a spell after my um, first son was born when I wasn't uh, when I wasn't working and his mum was. 
So for about the first year of his life, I was like his main, mm-hmm. his main carer, as they say. Um, and actually kind of being, being on your own all day with a small child, it, it, it kind of steals you up a bit. But, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, you, you know, you know, you know, you know, the old trick if you put them in, you put them in the push chair, you take them out, and they fall asleep because the moment <laughs> yeah. rocks them asleep. So I would do that of an afternoon. I'd put him in the push chair, take him out, go for a walk, go, go this particular circuit, you know, around the local streets, mm-hmm. North London, where I was at the time. And it was doing that that my mind actually began working on stories again. Mm-hmm. Because just walking around and around with him in his pushchair, you know, waiting for him to fall asleep, looking at the streets, looking at the people, just thinking, yeah. I wonder what's going on here. What are the stories yeah. happening here? This was when I really started to get into writing again because it, give, it gives you time to actually think out some, like, narrative yeah. problems when you're doing yeah. that. I mean, I'm a great walker anyway. I walk a lot. Um, and then what happened was that three more children, followed in quick succession and that was what I was saying about one compulsion replacing another because um, at one point we had four under six years old um, which you probably don't usually see outside of certain religious communities you know and this is basically just a very very lax attitude to contraception essentially (laughs) Um, so you know you suddenly have this family and a whole tribe of them as well yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, and so what happens then is that writing became the the kind of grown-up activity that I did, mm-hmm. you know, because obviously with that many children or even with just one, I mean, there's a lot of logistics you have to deal with. There's a lot of stuff yeah. to do, especially when they start school. You know, there's a lot of just stuff they need to do. And engaging with other kids' parents, which is always you know, kind of ghastly, um, but <laughs> yeah, it's all that. Um, but you know, it, so writing, carving out one or two hours at night, becomes mm. the kind of it becomes the the kind of intellectual stimulation. You know, yeah. it becomes the adult thing that you do. And of course, now yeah. that um, they're grown up, and I've, I've been, you know, we, we've been uh, my, their mum and I have been split up for many, many years now. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Kind of living on my own now, I've, I've kind of grown quite hardened into this life of, I, mm. I, if I'm doing nothing else, then I'm writing. Essentially, yeah. that's what I do. I mean, I, I mean, I, I used to, when I was a kid, I loved TV. I was brought up by TV, and of course, everyone knows mm. in the seventies you had the best TV. I mean, it's all rubbish now, <laughs> you know. But I mean, I haven't owned a TV for sixteen years. You know, my, yeah. my, my kind of my weakness, I have to say, is YouTube. the internet is my weakness but you know i just spend all time writing now because that's the thing that really fires me up and and of course i mean coming out of just being a nasty mess and because you can't really work i mean i was working through much of this period but you know you can't what i'm trying to say and i'm being a bit incoherent what i'm trying to say is when someone's in their 20s and mm-hmm. they come into work, you know, with a hangover now and again. It's kind of funny, <laughs> you know, because, you know, it's what lads do, you know, and it, it's kind <laughs> of a laugh because it's what lads do, you know. Yeah. And then you kind of get into your 30s and it becomes yeah. less funny. I mean, without being too kind of oh, highbrow about it and intellectual, but like in um, Thomas Mann's Death in Venice, 
when the guy's looking at the ship and you've got all these young people on the ship and there's this old guy with them who's like wearing makeup and he's trying to be this young guy with them and the narrator just thinks that looks so sad and pathetic that he's trying to be young like them and actually they're just making fun of him you know that's the thing you know you don't want to be that aging drunk you don't want to be that aging junkie i mean i remember back in the days when i used to go to some parties here and there you know and you know lots of young kids doing stuff and there'd always be like some 40 year old guy who'd been like doing heroin for 25 years you know and looked like hell and he'd always be there kind of trying to pick up a young girl or get people to pay attention to him and you think you actually don't want to live long enough to be that person you know you have to stop doing these things because what's funny and forgivable in your 20s just becomes rather pathetic later on and I mean I say and I say that without any you know without any kind of ill feeling towards addicts at all you know if you're addicted not everyone can just give things up I mean I gave things up and it hurt it hurt for months but you know it worked in the end not everyone can and I so I don't say it with any ill feeling and I don't say it with any kind of boasting, but I just could see myself becoming that sort of pathetic figure. And I just didn't want to be there. No, and I think but that's the thing is, you know, you're saying it that you don't have, you know, any negativity to say. But in a way, no, you're not boasting, but it is difficult to give, you know, something like that up. A hundred percent is difficult, whatever your addiction is. So the fact that you did and you have yeah you can boast <laughs> i think it's definitely you 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 can be proud to boast and you should you know pat yourself on the back occasionally because it is an amazing thing to to do that if 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 you know if you want to if you want to give it up and to be able to do it that you know that is amazing i mean i i still no, thank you for that i mean i still i still feel something of the nervousness i mean for example for a long long time afterwards after i gave all that up i didn't touch alcohol at all um because i was i was kind of scared of going back down that path and you know probably about 10 12 years ago i started to, to think you know actually this is a little bit unhealthy having this this kind of fear and i'm i'm now in a place where you know once maybe twice a year I'll I'll have a glass of red wine, you know, on a special occasion with special yeah, people, yeah. you know, I will have one glass of red wine and yeah. I can do that and I can put the glass down and walk away from it because I didn't yeah. want to be scared of alcohol, you know. Yeah. I, I wanted to have like this normal relationship with it. So, yeah. so I mean, I, I can do that now, but it's not something I do very often. Um, obviously, I mean, yeah. I, and I, and I, you know, I still actually still miss smoking cigarettes a bit, but it's it's a bit food to go back to smoking cigarettes. And as for the other stuff, I'll oh, forget it. Yeah, you know it doesn't help yeah. you. I mean, I'm so I'm just running off my mouth a bit here, but I mean, it's just I, I think I bought a bit into that myth that you know if you take loads of substances, you're going to be a better writer. And okay. you, you know, can I just looking through the lens here? You know, take it from me. Really, it doesn't work. It's not true. It's mm-hmm. really not. Yeah, because you you hear stories that when people have been on X Y Z, they've been more creative and they have 
been whatever their whatever their art or their talent is they've almost done it you know more creatively to put it bluntly but yeah we'll take it from you yeah i mean if you know there's nothing in there's nothing inherently wrong with experimenting a bit in your life i mean i'm yeah. you know you know i'm i get very I, I get very dispirited when people are totally risk averse and and it seems to me, and this, this will sound a real old part thing to say, but it seems to me that a lot of younger people today are far more risk averse um, than than my generation was. You know, and I think that, that the point about risk management, I can tell you because I know, the point about risk management is not to completely avoid risks, but to mm-hmm. to take properly managed risks. That's the point. So, I mean, I wouldn't say to people, don't experiment. And, of course, where this gets real is I mentioned that my children are now adults, you know, and they're they're adults. They smoke. They drink, you know, and Mm -hmm. I can't – I am in no position to tell them not to do that, you know. I'm in no position to tell them not to do that because I'm not an example. You know, they have to Mm -hmm. learn for themselves around this. yeah. Yeah, and I think it's trial and error. A lot of people, they do learn for themselves. Um, whatever it is, they do learn. Do you think that Do you think that writing now has, I mean, let's say saved you in a way. Do you think having being able to write and, you know, even when you started writing, you know, not long after you, you know, you had your first child, do you think that really helped? Yes, I do. I mean, I think that, I, you know, if, if I couldn't write anymore, if I if I lost the ability to put one word after another on the page, I would be inconsolable. I would be absolutely yeah. inconsolable. And obviously, and I, without wanting to be too much of a downer, you know, because we don't want people getting too kind of glum with all this. But again, as you get older, you start to think a little bit more, and you know, almost naturally not deliberately but you start to think more and more about legacy about what you're going to leave behind you know and the fact yeah. of if i couldn't actually do that anymore if i lost the ability to do it i mean i'm you know i've always and again this is the privilege really you know i've always been able to write another story and another one and another one and if that left me i, I would just be absolutely despondent and there'd be no doing anything with me yeah. because it be, it really has become the rationale of my life. I mean, everything that I do, right down to having this conversation with you, but you know, going out to going no, going out to work, earning money, everything that I do supports writing. You know, now that I don't have to support my children financially anymore because they're you know they can they they work and support themselves. You know, now that I don't have to do that anymore, everything I do supports writing. It supports this one thing that I want to do because hey you know you need a day job because no one's going to make any money from writing yeah yeah no I I understand what you mean um and I guess that's the thing as well it's it's finding it's finding something you love to do um after or even during a dark time and it's it's if you can find that one thing that you love it can really change yeah it can change everything oh no absolutely so i mean i I wouldn't underplay how important having children was 
I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting everyone should just go out and have four children to improve their lives yeah. because it, it brings its own challenges. But you know, <laughs> it for me, pers- for me personally, it was a tremendous corrective on being selfish. You know, because ultimately, when you were living yeah. the kind of life that I was living, it's selfish. Ultimately. You know, you're, when you're only concerned about, mm. you know, about what you're putting down your own throat. And actually, this is what I meant when I said, you know, no, no one can prepare you for it. Because when you have children, all that just goes out the window. And it goes out the window overnight. You know, you go to the hospital, you come back yeah. with this child. And you've just got to do it then. And like do it every <laughs> minute of the day. You know, and, yeah. and it is difficult. You know, yeah. it, it is difficult. I mean, I think, you know, um, the, the boy's mum actually made quite a good observation to me once when she said that, you know, we made an awful lot of fuss of the first one because we wanted to get it right. You know, we just want to get everything right and yeah. make sure he was safe, you know. And then by the time you get to number four, you kind of just forget what you did because <laughs> it just becomes so automatic. You think, oh, was he a baby? I can't remember. I had these other three to look after. Yeah. You know, and, and you actually yeah, yeah. You, know, you get more skilled at it and, and you, you worry less. You know, I think probably the more children you have, yeah. the less of the panicking parent thing you have because you've seen it all, you know. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, you're not, the first, you're not the first person I've heard to say that. <laughs> you know, but, so that was really important. And then, you know, being able through having that thinking time to kind of rediscover what I wanted to do around yeah. around writing. I mean it's it's interesting. Um you know, because when I was when I was studying in New York a few years ago, um I could being a student of creative writing, you're kind of doing it full time. You know, it's almost like mm-hmm. a full time job but you're not getting paid for it. In fact you're paying far too much to a rapacious university. But I I don't know that I enjoyed that so much when it's something you have to do. You know, I've kicked this idea around about, would you know, would I want to be a full-time writer? And there are attractions to that, certainly. I mean, I've got a list as long as my arm of things that, you know, things I want to write. And if I had more time, I would. Um, but I'm not sure that it's not just another path into selfishness in some ways. Yeah. Actually having to make time, to find time, and to make the best use of time is a really strong incentive, you know, to yeah, get yeah. things done. Yeah, of course, of course. No, it, it, of course it makes total sense. And I wanted to ask as well then, so, you know, when you gave everything up and obviously you had your kid and you, you, you gave everything up suddenly – yeah, I, you said it was it was extremely difficult, and I can imagine it was extremely difficult, and that's why a lot of the time people can't give things up. But how mentally, how did you how did you get through that stage? Because obviously you did. You're here now, but how did you get through that to 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 not fall back or to how how did you find that? I mean, I, I think that you know, obviously, just giving everything up all all in one go and just going through kind of going through the consequences of that. It's it's all it's kind of like getting an electric shock, you know, in the sense that you become really averse, or I did anyway, I became really averse to those things that I'd been involved with. Yeah. You know, because it it wasn't worth going through all of that effort just to slide back again. 
and I mean, and, yeah. and again, I'm I'm trying to be careful about what I say because I appreciate that for some people it's very very difficult. Yeah. to stop doing what they're doing, even if they want to stop doing it, um, because it is so attractive. Being drunk is so attractive. Being high is so attractive yeah. compared with the alternative. You know, that I can understand people not being able to do that, but I, yeah. you know, with these growing responsibilities that I had, I felt I just, going back to that day when I woke up at six o'clock at night, I just thought, no, I've wasted enough time. Yeah. But I mean, it was it was difficult at first because people don't always understand that you've given everything up, and they don't understand why you can't just indulge kind of a little bit. And you know, that comfort blanket is easy to reach to. Um, but I was I was just determined that I I wasn't going to be wasting any more days like that. Yeah. You know, and I mean, we're talking about doing absurd things like you know spending eighteen hours in a pub. You know, which you can do if you've got a lock in. You know, you can you can spend 18 hours in a pub, and I've done that. And then you just – I remember, actually, the time I did that, that was really weird because what happened was we'd spent 18 hours drinking in this pub. We'd been, like, locked in all night through the next morning, drunk a load, gone home, fallen asleep. And our, when we woke up, it had snowed while we'd been asleep. So the whole world just looked different <laughs> when you woke up. That was really weird because everything was covered with snow. Um, but – <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of it is funny, but it's kind of not really funny. I just didn't want to waste any more time. Yeah. And and I'm I'm actually yeah, quite yeah. a stubborn person. Um, I'm actually a very stubborn person. And when when I you know, and I never like to give up on something. I mean, again, yeah. you know, addictive behaviour. Um, if I set out to do something, I will keep trying to do it. Often, I will keep trying to do it beyond the point where it's obvious to a reasonable person that it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, again, addictive behaviour. So having made up my mind to do this, I, I just wasn't going to go back. I mean, the one thing yeah. I did want to do, though, was to just try to have that sensible relationship with alcohol. But as I say, it's yeah. like once or twice a year at most, and it's only one once. Yeah. I don't trust myself anymore yeah. with that. Yeah, no, of course, but I guess in a way you have been able to manage a slightly sensible behaviour. So if that is something that you wanted to do, then you've been able to get there anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is something I'm going to just need to keep keep on kind of thinking about, you know, because yeah, you know, they, you know, the, even today it's been a long time, but even now there are still some things I've missed. But it's, I just find it quite hilarious now that more and more people are just not drinking now you know i I can actually see you know alcohol going i can see alcohol going the way of cigarettes ultimately you know it just stops being socially acceptable yeah yeah you're right there is a from people that i know as well and friends that i know yeah a lot of people a lot of people do drink still but a lot of people also don't um and I think, but the, at the moment, it, there's this balance of 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 accepting the people that don't, because not everyone wants to anymore. And there is a whole thing where when people don't drink, it's or you know do X Y Z, or you're not cool in inverted commas, or you know it's why aren't you drinking tonight, and why aren't you this? And I think it's it's getting to a point where it is just accepting and you know understanding that some people don't want to. And I think you know, and money comes into this as well. Yeah. I mean, it, it used to be a lot cheaper to do all this stuff than it 
is now. Yeah. It used to be an awful lot cheaper to do this stuff than it is now. But I mean, one of the things, just sort of touching briefly back onto uh, on the level, I mean, I mentioned that, that Riz likes a drink and she goes to great lengths to get hold of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Because for her, it actually blocks out the fact that she's really quite lonely and isolated. You know, she tells yeah. us a few times in the book that, you know, that she's got friends. She makes this point of saying, I've got friends. Of course I've got friends. But no one ever calls her. No one ever messages yeah. her. You know, she messages people and they don't message back. Yeah. You know, and she's pushed back into herself all the time. Yeah. And she wants to quieten down the voices in her head as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, she wants, she wants to keep those voices quiet. And, and alcohol helps with that. But she has got yeah. quite a high resilience to well, to alcohol yeah, and yeah. to everything. I mean, I, I, yeah. I actually very much enjoyed writing that book because it was great to have Riz's voice in my head. Yeah. She just told me the story. I, I did very little. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like maybe you reflected with Riz in what you were saying about, you know, why she drank or was it something completely different? No, I, I mean, I, I think so. You know, I think so because just going kind of way, way, way back to something we were saying earlier on, you know, you start off in your teens, you start off going to the pub because it's a kind of social thing and, you know, or if like me in kind of late teens, early 20s, you know, you go to the pub on your own because there's a lot of other people yeah. there who are on their own and you see each other every night and you just have the same conversation across the bar yeah. every night, you know, and it just becomes the thing the thing that you do yeah. because, you know, it's kind of, I suppose, because it's, it's just better than sitting in your room looking at the walls. I mean, I, I know I've repeated myself a few times on this, but I'd, I, I really, really don't want to give any impression that I feel that I'm in any way better than people who still do this stuff. I mean, around where I live, there is a very large street homeless population yeah. around where I live. You know, and you know, people who spend their whole days mm-hmm. basically moving from one spot to another and back again. And I can fully, fully understand why those guys drink. You're going to, you're sitting there at people's knee level yeah. all day trying to get someone to pay you some attention you know, to give you a bit of change. And, of course, no one actually carries cash anymore these days, you know. And, of course, you've got to drink. What else are you going to do, you know? Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I I feel in no way that I'm better than anyone else. It's just I've made different decisions. But I can understand why why some people are not able to break away from that or why people need help from whatever source. You know, to break away yeah. from it, whether it's a, you know, whether it's through a talking therapy or whether it's through, you know, some kind of medical intervention. I mean, I think you can have these implants that makes alcohol just taste disgusting or something. But although I don't think that worked okay. for George Best, I think he carried off drinking. <laughs> but I guess the thing is, is it's you're not coming across that you are better than anyone else, and you're not coming across that you think that way. How you're coming across is that. You know, why we're here is you to show yourself that, you know, you wanted to make a decision and you were able to do this. You were able to get through it and you were able to change things. And it is for people that might not be there or might want to and are really struggling. But with your story, you know, you show other people that there is hope and 
it is tough and it's going to be hard. And there's, there's, there's no, you know, there's no question about that, but there is hope. And I, that's with, with any kind of, I, you know, my, you know, my story was a physical injury and it's with any kind of recovery in a sense that you do hit the darkness and, you know, in a different way to you, there was a stage where I can see when people get into that, that kind of way where you can fall and you can stay down there and you can just keep going lower and lower and spiraling. Cause I remember, I remember the moment when I saw that. And then I also remember saying the moment where it's like, okay, but I can do this or I can do something different about it. So I like you can understand completely, but in a, in a such a different context of how easy it is to stay in that state and whether it's addiction or whatever it is, how easy it is to stay there Absolutely. and how difficult it is to take that very first, very first step, how difficult it is. I mean, I, I can't, you're absolutely right. I mean, I can't even remember, sadly, the first day I had without drinking, you know, for, for many, many years. I'm sure, I'm sure I was just yeah. hung over the whole day. I'm sure I had a headache <laughs> the whole day, but I mean, I, Again, talking about hindsight, yeah, I I wouldn't swap that experience. Um, yeah. I wish I could remember a bit more of those days, you know, because years yeah. pass, and that's the thing when you're drunk. Years pass; they yeah. just go, you know, and you don't really have. I can't remember my twenties, early thirties, hardly at all. Yeah. You know, and I'd, I'd just like to be able to remember a bit more about those days. But if it hadn't have been for those times, then I wouldn't be who I am today. You know, and I'm saying that. So, I mean, I I think probably if I'd carried on on that course, I, you know, I would have been dead, I would imagine. I, you know, I nearly died once from some, from taking some speed that I knew instinctively was dubious I just had the instinct it was dubious but I took, yeah. I took it anyway um, you know, and I nearly died from that and I mean it's but you you wouldn't say oh I wish I'd lived a different life well there's no point saying that because actually you can't you know and yeah. and it was there was value in doing all those things I, yeah. I think probably my only regret is that I did quite so much of it you know probably just a few years would have been enough not you know a decade or more yeah yeah it's really interesting because I did want to actually ask you would you have changed what you've been through and you said no and I mean more people than not say that more people than not say that they wouldn't change the event or the circumstance or whatever it is they went through. And I think that's a really interesting, just a really interesting, you know, frame of mind and, and uh, just concept. So. I mean, on the practical level, you know, you can't change that because you can't go back yeah. and what a mess life would be if you could go back into the past. Um, but also, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's just, Again, not being too kind of, you know, not, not being kind of blowing things up into more than they are, but just realising that the way you are today is the product of all the previous days. You know, mm -hmm. and if you change one thing here or there, then you're going to end up being a different person. Yeah. You know, 
And, and I mean, and that runs through the whole thread of life. You know, what if, you know, you go to a job interview, you know, and you don't get the job. But what if you had got the job? Well, then your life would have changed, of yeah. course, again. You know, what if you turn yeah. left instead of right? You know, what if you yeah. say hello to that person instead of walking past them? You know, all these things yeah. day after day after day. And if you try to work out how might my life have been, you're going to drive yeah. yourself crazy <laughs> because it's unpicking all of those moments, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. lead us to right here to where we are now. And where we are now is the mm-hmm. only moment we have. You know, you can't. You can't go back into the past. You can't know the future. At least I would rather not yes. know the future. Um, I'd, I'd really rather not. You know, <laughs> you know, what you have now is the only moment yeah. that there is. And again, none of these are stellar insights. But people say these things because they're true. You end up being who you are today. And today is what matters. Yeah, and it, it's it's trying to live in the present moment as best as you can and as much as you can um and it is it's you know life has got you to where it's got you and you can either I guess you can either sink or swim from what's happened so far and it has got to you to where you are today and even the worst things and the negative things bring out good in some ways <laughs> absolutely so you know absolutely so now I've got some you know the, the the pleasure of you know seeing my my sons who are now in their you know they're in their early twenties so they're just starting yeah. out doing all of this and interestingly I mean I'm I am already a grandfather uh, because one of them, <laughs> uh, one of my sons has that same lax attitude to contraception so <laughs> so I've now got this beautiful granddaughter you know which I never expected to happen. Well, yeah. I'm sure he never expected to happen either. <laughs> yeah, no, that's adorable. And I wanna, I wanna ask: Do you have what's your one piece of advice for? And let's special, let's kind of let's focus on addiction here. You know, what is your one piece of advice for somebody that that might be in that state where they they do wanna change and they 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 do wanna let go of it? And they're really struggling. What What is one thing that you would say? I would say that if you really want to let go of it and you're convinced that you want to let go of it, but it, it won't let go of you, then mm-hmm. find someone to help you. If you can't do it yourself, then find someone to help you. And there's no shame in finding people to help you. Yeah. You know, there, there's no shame in... in you know, if you've got to move a heavy ladder, getting someone else to carry the other end of the ladder, yeah. you know, really, it just makes <laughs> it just makes sense. You know, so yeah. if I mean, I'm not saying I would advise people to stop. I, I would just say I would advise people really to consider, you know, what they want to be doing in five, ten, twenty years, and whether they yeah. still want to be that person because it's not going to change. You know, I spent mm-hmm. a decade or more doing pretty much the same thing every day, mm-hmm. you know. And obviously, you know, when when you're a really hardcore drunk, a hardcore junkie, all your energy is invested in getting the next drink, getting the next fix. So every day becomes the same. So if someone were misguided mm-hmm. enough to ask me my advice, I would say, well, if you're serious that you want to stop, then 
you know, get someone to help you, talk it through with someone. You know, find someone whose yeah. opinion you trust. Try and work it out. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's, you know, that is the thing like you were saying. Not everybody wants to, and that's fine. And, you know, some people, you know, they, they're okay with that. And, again, that's fine. Um, there's no right or wrong here. That's the whole point. It's, it's, there's no right or wrong. But it's for the people that do want to. So it's definitely a – I think asking for help, a lot of people don't realize – and a lot of people don't want to ask for help. And I, you know, hear that a lot. And we say it a lot. People don't want to ask for help. They don't want to admit things or they just, they don't want to, they'd rather take it in on their own. But it is amazing what even one person, finding one person, what one person can do to help you change your life. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm, you know, you know, and I'll, I'll say this because I'm an old bloke, so I can say it. It's <laughs> often men who... Yeah. feel that they have to carry everything on their shoulders mm-hmm. because they're men. You know, and I, I mean, I, and I, again, I see this a bit with my sons because they say they're young men and, you know, they, they want to be men. That's what they want. They want to be men. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to walk down the street and people say, he's a man, he's a bloke, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I think men particularly carry a lot on their shoulders. Women who are inevitably far more intelligent than men know that you, you need help and you need to share things. You know, and you yeah. need to get in touch with that emotional intelligence. Um, and it, and so it can be, you know, it can be really hard. But yeah. you might also want to consider, you know, your impact on the people around you and people who love yeah. you. I was a horrible person when I was drinking. I was a really horrible person. And I yeah. I, I can remember enough to know that. You know, yeah. and there's a lot of people who are not in my life now because of that. You know, so yeah. it, although you can't live through other people, you might just want to think about what what effect are my actions having. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It makes sense. Is there anything else that you want to discuss today or mention? Um, well, only to say, buy the book. <laughs> Absolutely, buy the book. Else Absolutely, ten ninety nine. That will give you more pleasure. <laughs> Absolutely, by the book. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, it's it's definitely sounds like a really fascinating read. I haven't got to it, but I have got it on my list. Um, and it's interesting to pick your brains as well as the author to see maybe where. And I find that always really interesting with authors and when people write books is to see a little bit more about the person behind the book, because then when you do read it, it, it feels a lot more personal. I, that's my kind of opinion when you know a little bit more about the author. Indeed. So indeed. So it's, it's been great speaking with you today. It's been great to speak to you as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. And remember you can pick up a copy of the book in bookstores and online. On the Level by Mark Wagstaff. As Mark explains, it is hard to let go of something, and some people don't want to, which is totally okay. But if you do, and are struggling to do so, remember you're not alone. Reach out to someone, to anyone. People always offer a hand along your journey. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the book.